Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. One of the most important themes structuring the narrative world of A Wizard of Earthsea and indeed all of the other Earthsea novels and stories is that of the true name. And so what we're talking about here is how language is understood and how language connects up with the world, but also with our own selves, whether we have power over things, whether names and words and designations are merely arbitrary or whether they get to the heart of things, as we're going to see, for example, much later on in the work when Ged tells his his friend Vetch, you know, your sister is like a little minnow. And Vetch says to him, wow, you're really a true mage because her name in the true speech is indeed that of minnow. And of course, Ged says, you probably shouldn't have revealed that to me, buddy, because names are incredibly private and personal because of their connection to power. And one of the fitting places to begin is actually when Ged is in the isolate tower studying these long lists of names. We see Ged's sides sometimes, but he did not complain. He saw that in this dusty and fathomless matter of learning the true name of every place, thing, and being, the power he wanted lay like a jewel at the bottom of a dry well. Why? For magic consists in this, the true naming of a thing. So the master had said to them once their first night in the tower, he never repeated it, but Ged did not forget his words. And we're going to come back to that in in just a moment because there's a very important lesson being conveyed there. So naming is incredibly important. And as before Le Guin actually writes A Wizard of Earthsea, she writes another short story set in Earthsea called The Rule of Names, which is worth checking out as well. So what is a true name? It's a name in a language that is not known to most human beings, but is in fact spoken by the dragons who never abandoned that language. It is the original language of Earthsea called the true speech or the old speech, as opposed to the Hardic language, which is descended from the old speech, which is what most of the inhabitants of the archipelago speak, although there are some islands where they speak other things. The Kargish people have their own language as well, which is disconnected from that. They took a different path, as we'll find out in later novels. But this idea of the true speech is particularly important. And we get a lot of important depictions of this. So There's a discussion of this in that very lesson chapter. And this is what Karamek has said to them. Many a mage of great power has spent his whole life to find out the name of one single thing, one single lost or hidden name, and still the lists are not finished, nor will they be till world's end. Listen, and you will see why. In the world under the sun and in the other world that has no sun, there is much has nothing to do with men and men's speech. And there are powers beyond our power, but magic 
True magic is worked only by those beings who speak the Hardic tongue of Earthsea or the old speech from which it grew. This is the language that dragons speak and the language Segoy spoke who made the islands of the world and the language of our lays and songs, spells, enchantments, and invocations. Its words lie hidden and changed among our Hardic words. Now he gives some examples of how this works. We call the foam on waves Sukian. That word is made from two words of the old speech. Suk, feather, and inni in the sea. Feather of the sea is foam. He's talking about a metaphor there, right? But you cannot charm the foam, calling it Sukian. You must use its own true name in the old speech, which is Essa, a third word, a third thing. Not a metaphor, but the genuine name. Any witch, he says, knows a few of these words in the old speech, and a mage knows many. But there are many more, and some have been lost over the ages, some have been hidden, some are known only to dragons and to the old powers of the earth, and some are known to no living creature, and no man could learn them all, for there is no end to that language. Sometimes it feels like our own language doesn't have any sort of end to it. English has one of the largest lexicons of world languages, but even so, there must be a finitude to it. This is an assertion that, no, there isn't, because the world itself and every portion of it is named within this old speech. So language and being and thought, you could say, are connected with each other in the old speech in a way different than what we're used to in our only. And this notion of names, things that apply to particular things, whether they be generic, like, you know, to the otak, or to types of birds, or particular to a single body of water, a single stem, a, a person. All of these are names. And like he said, the names are known to sentient beings like human beings, to dragons, to the old powers of the earth, one of which we're going to get introduced to in this book. Some of them are known to none, no living creatures at this time, but everything has its name. And knowing the name, speaking the name, gives one power. So this is why we've got this dictum here. Magic consists in this, the true naming of a thing. And we get a really interesting discussion about this earlier when Ged is talking to the master hand. He's learning all these ways of making things look like other things, seeming, right? And he says... These charms are much the same. Knowing one, you know them all. As soon as the spell weaving ceases, the illusion vanishes. If I make a pebble into a diamond, and he did so with a word and flick of his wrist, what must I do to make that diamond remain diamond? How is the changing spell locked and made to last? The master hand looked at the jewel that glittered on Ged's palm, bright as the prize of a dragon's hoard. The old master murmured one word, Tolk, and there lay the pebble. No jewel, but a rough gray bit of rock. So you see he has power over it. He can change it back into what it actually is or remove the seeming, the illusion. He says, this is a rock, tulk, in the true speech. A bit of the stone of which Roke Isle is made. A little bit of the dry land on which men live. It is itself. It is part of the world. By the illusion change, you can make it look like a diamond or a flower or a fly or an eye or a flame. The rock flickered from shape to shape as he named them and returned to rock. But that is mere seeming. Illusion fools the beholder's senses. It makes him see and hear and feel that a thing has changed. But it does not change the thing. To change this rock into a jewel, you must change its true name. Changing the name changes the thing. 
And there's a danger involved in this, he said. It can be done. To do that, my son, even to so small a scrap of the world, is to change the world. It can be done. Indeed, it can be done. It is the art of the master changer, and you will learn it when you're ready to learn it. But you must not change one thing, one pebble, one grain of sand, until you know what good and evil will follow on that act. He says, a rock is a good thing. If the Isles of Versailles were made of diamond, we'd lead a hard life here. And so this is quite an important lesson, which is going to lead to discussion of the equilibrium, which is a whole other topic. But it is possible to change the nature of things. Indeed, that is what happens when a mage changes himself into a falcon or into a dragon or a bear, as we learn about a terrible story. So how do we acquire these names? What, what's involved there? We see at the very beginning that you can learn names from other people. And this is, in fact, what is happening when Gad himself is learning from his aunt. I'm going to read this a little bit. A sister of his dead mother lived in the village. She'd done what was needful for him as a baby, but she had business of her own. And once he could look after himself, he, she paid no more heed to him. But one day when the boy was seven years old, untaught and knowing nothing of the arts and powers that are in the world, he heard his aunt crying out words to a goat, which had jumped up on the thatch of a hut and would not come down. But it came jumping down when she cried a certain rhyme to it. Next day, herding the long-haired goats on the metals of High Fall, Dunny shouted to them the words he'd heard, not knowing their use or meaning or what kind of words they were. Noth heareth malk man, heoth han merk han. He yelled the rhyme aloud and the goats came to him. They came very quickly, all of them together not making any sound. They looked at him out of the dark slot in their yellow eyes. He laughed and shouted it again, the rhyme that gave him power over the goats. They came closer, crowding and pushing around him. And she eventually comes and then, you know, dispels the spell. He's learned some of the true names, some of the old speech or true speech by listening to her. And then she says, oh, I'm going to have to teach this kid. And of course, she's got some screwed up ideas herself. But she says to him, hey, would you like to learn some other names that will do things? She says... She might teach him rhymes he would like better, such as the word that makes a snail look out of its shell or the name that calls a falcon down from the sky. Aye, teach me that name, he said, being clear over the fright the goats had given him. The witch said to him, you will not ever tell that word to the other children if I teach it to you. I promise. She smiled at his ready ignorance. Well and good, but I will bind your promise. Your tongue will be stilled until I choose to unbind it. Then, even then, even though you can speak, you will not be able to speak the word I teach you where another person can hear it. We must keep the secrets of our craft. And then she tries to bind him. It doesn't actually work. And here we see this was Dunny's first step on the way he was to follow all of his life, the way of majory. But those first steps along the way, it seemed a broad, bright road. When he found the wild falcon stooped down to him from the wind, when he summoned them by name, lighting with a thunder of wings on his wrist like the hunting bird of a prince, then he hungered to know more names and came to his aunt, begging to learn the name of the sparrowhawk and the osprey and the eagle. To earn the words of power, he did all the which asked of him and learned all she taught, though not all of it was pleasant to know or do. She's not a black sorceress, as we find out, but she's kind of a, you know, a goofball in some respects. And so you can learn in that way, right? And you can learn from all sorts of people in that way. 
We also find him learning in a much more structured way in the passage that I read earlier from the master namer on rope, which involves being in the isolate tower and copying out these lists of names, which seems like an incredibly boring thing to do, right? He, he was sent with seven boys across Roke Island to the farthest northmost cape where stands the isolate tower. There by himself lived the master namer who was called by a name that had no meaning in any language. Grim it stood above the northern cliffs, gray were the clouds over the seas of winter, endless the links, the lists and ranks and rounds of names that the namers eight pupils must learn. And so students must learn before midnight the name of every cape, point, bay, sound, inlet, channel, harbor, shallows, reef, and rock of the shores of Lassau, a little islet of the Pelinish Sea. If the student complained, the master might say nothing but lengthen the list. Or he might say, who, he who would be sea master must know the true name of every drop of water in the sea. So what's going on here is this exhaustive activity of memorizing the names, not only of general things, but of very specific things. Why? Because that's very important to do. Another mode of learning the names of things is modeled by that of Ogion, the mage of Gaunt, with whom Ged does a, a first apprenticeship, right? And so what we find is that he's told by Ogion, it's almost like, you know, the movie Karate Kid, where Daniel is doing, you know, paint the fence and buff the car and all that. And it turns out he's learning karate. So Ged is learning from Ogion. So he says, when will my apprenticeship begin, sir? Ogion says, it has begun. There was a silence. Then Ged says, but I haven't learned anything yet because you haven't found out what I'm teaching, replied the mage. He was a dark man like most Gauntishmen, dark copper brown, gray-haired, lean and tough as a hound, tireless. He spoke seldom, ate less, slept less. His eyes and ears were very keen and often there was a listening look on his face. That's very important. You want to work spells, Ogion said presently. You've drawn too much water from that. Well, wait, manhood is patience. Mastery is nine times patience. What is that herb by the path? Strawflower. And that? I don't know. Fourfoil, they call it. Ogion had halted the copper-shod foot of his staff near the little weed, so Ged looked closely at the plant and plucked a dry seed pod from it, and finally asked, since Ogion said nothing more, What is its use, master? None I know of. Ged kept the seed pod a while as they went on, then tossed it away. Now here's the key point. When you know the fourfoil in all its seasons, root and leaf and flower by sight and scent and seed, then you may learn its true name, knowing its being which is more than its use. What, after all, is the use of you or of myself? Is Gaunt Mountain useful or the open sea? To hear, one must be silent. So Ogion is teaching him to learn what the true names of things are, which can only be done by a sort of receptivity on the part of the mage. Listening, attending to, waiting until the names reveal themselves. Names are also given to human beings. And this is something that's absolutely key to the, we could call it the anthropology of the archipelago. You have a name that's given to you as a child, as our main character is with Duny, right? He also has a kind of nickname that will become his public name, Sparrowhawk. He might be given other names in other places when he shows up, 
and people give them a name. For example, in the, the story, The Rule of Names, preceding this, the descendant of the Lords of Pendor is called Blackbeard because he's got a black beard, right? Mr. Underhill, he lives under a, a hill. So these are those sorts of names. And then you have the true name that is given to you. And Ged's true name, Ged, is given to him by Ogion, the mage. And as a matter of fact, there's a, a wonderful passage later on where Ged has flown away and manages to make it there as a hawk. Ogion the Silent had come home late to Realbi from his autumn wanderings, more silent, more solitary than ever he had become as the years went on. The morning after his return, he rose late and wanting a cup of rushwash tea, went out to fetch water from the spring. A great hawk came down with loud beating wings and lighted on his whisk. Like a trained hunting bird, it clung there, but it bore no broken leash, nor band, nor bell. The claws dug hard in Ogion's wrist. The barred wings trembled. The round gold eye was dull and wild. Are you messenger or message? Ogion said gently to the hawk. Come on with me. As he spoke, the hawk looked at him. Ogion was silent a minute. I named you once, I think, he said, then strode to his house and entered, bearing the bird still on his, on his wrist. He made the hawk stand on the hearth in the fire's heat and offered it water. It would not drink. Then Ogion began a spell very quietly weaving the web of magic with his hands more than with words. When the spell was whole and woven, he said softly, Ged. Not looking at the falcon on the hearth, he waited some while, then turned and got up, then went to the young man who stood trembling and dull-eyed before the fire. He's able to untransform Ged from the form that he took on, perhaps too long, of the falcon. So this is very important, human beings knowing their names. If you have somebody's name, you have power over them. And this is displayed also in trust, in love in a reliance on other people. To give somebody else your name is a sign that you are becoming vulnerable to them. And this is indeed what happens when Ged's friend Vetch gives to him his name, Astariel. Actually, as I mentioned, Astariel's a little bit loose with names when it comes to Ged, telling him his sister's name as well, without her permission, uh, towards the end of the book. And then Ged gives Astariel his name as well. This is a sign of intimacy, of trust, of a bond. The last thing that we have to touch upon that plays an important role here, weaving throughout the entire thing, is Ged's own name and the shadow's name. Does the shadow actually have a name? The Archmage suggests that it comes from a place where there are no names, and therefore it can't be named. Ged has promises from the, the stone and from the dragon that this shadow could in fact be named. We find that the shadow knows Ged's name, and therefore Ged is not able to work any magic against it, and is vulnerable to it as well, and has to try to flee from it, leaving behind, unfortunately, his little friend, the Otak, to die. In the end, it turns out that the shadow does have a name, but we'll leave that for a moment. So this is really an absolutely central feature of Earthsea. We have names of things. We have names of people. Dragons have names. Everything has a name, a word for it in the true or the old speech by which the entire archipelago of Earthsea was brought out of the waters in the beginning. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. 
You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works. <laughs>